Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Rehabilitation, Everton Football Club, Matt Taberner. Thanks for tuning in to episode 233 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Matt Taberner on for a part two. So it's almost 18 months since part one, and if you haven't checked out part one, I would highly recommend it. So in this episode, we discuss a lot around the control chaos continuum. And this is on the back of Matt's recent publication in the British Journal of Sports Medicine around this topic. So we discussed that in great detail, as well as Uh, GPS and how that integrates with this continuum, Uh, neuromuscular testing again and how it relates to this uh, control chaos continuum and some really interesting practical recommendations which outline the publication but are kind of built out in this podcast. So really appreciate Matt's open and honest view on, on the rehabilitation process and how this control chaos continuum fits within that. So it's going to be a great episode which I'm sure you'll absolutely love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by the University of Notre Dame and Australian Catholic University who are excited to host their second annual Human Performance Summit. This year's focus will be on moving past the barriers that limit the integration of performance teams. So the Human Performance Summit, the performance team puzzle, will be held in the beautiful University of Notre Dame campus on Friday, June the 21st and Saturday, June the 22nd. Rather than hosting individuals to speak on generic topics, there's a focus on bringing in performance teams to speak on how they operate through success and failure. So each one of these presentations will be followed by an intimate question and answer portion, and then tying everything together with a 90 minute practical session. It's something that I've spoke to loads of people about recently, and people are finding less value in repeated presentations at conferences, but more value in the conversations that go on the hallways. So both Friday and Saturday night, they'll be hosting an event on campus with activities geared towards sharing an organic discussion. And it was these events last year that proved to be the highlight of the conference. So if you're interested in getting to know more about the conference, I've put a couple of links in the show notes, which will take you to the presenter list and more information on the conference itself. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Iron Measure U. So Iron Measure U is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So Iron Measure U recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMAGU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaching athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMAGU, head over to the website imagu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at IMAGU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt Taberner. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Matt Taberner on, who is Head of Rehab at Everton Football Club for a part two. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hi, Rob. Nice to uh, have me again. See if I can uh, bore any of your... Uh... Uh, any of your listeners again? <laughs> don't be modest, mate. Don't be modest. So thank you for coming on again. And like I, we, we just had a little chat off air, and I, every time I look of when the part ones were, if I do a, a part two with guests, it always scares me how far away, or sorry, how long ago part ones were, and it was 18 months. So it was, we're definitely due a part two. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, maybe a, a few things have changed at the club since, um, since last time we spoke. But do you just want to give us a bit of an overview of who you are, where you've been previous to Everton, and what your yeah. role is at the club? Yeah, no problem, Rob. Uh, well, I've been in football now for what we are. Getting on for, thir- well, being into my 14th season next year, so we're in the 13th season now. So I finished uh, my master's degree at Loughborough in 2007, studying sport and exercise nutrition. And then obviously I began working part-time for the first six months at Aston Villa in the, in the academy. Which then, after six months, I began uh, went full time uh, as a role of uh, academy sports scientist, predominantly working with the 18s and below. Uh, and then in my time there, obviously progressed, did little bits with like throughout the because I was into the sports science department as a club before the elite player performance plan came into fruition. Uh, and obviously then worked a lot when that came into 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 the pipeline. I became lead academy sports scientist and obviously was more responsible for the. Uh, the professional development phase, particularly with the 23s group or reserves as it was back then. Uh, and then obviously in 2013, um, got the opportunity to um, to join uh, Everton, uh, move into the Northwest and work with Steve Tashan. Um, and obviously that worked with him for the first eight months before he moved back to uh, Columbus Crew in America. Uh, and obviously I took up the role of head of sports science at Everton where I was in that position for around three and a half years, obviously working with Roberto Martinez, we're working with Ronald Koeman, and then obviously uh, changed the manager with Sam Allardyce and also with currently where we are with uh, Marco Silva uh, in that time. So I've now operated in the ho- uh, role of head of rehabilitation where I've been for just under two years. And obviously I'm currently um, in the middle of um, my professional doctorate at Liverpool John Moores University um, looking at blending science and art in rehabilitation in elite soccer. Superb. So just give us a bit of an insight into the Prof Doc. I know there's, it's, there's plenty of people going through that now at Liverpool John Moores. How is it structured and what, obviously you're giving us the title there in the kind of area, and we'll delve into a little bit deeper uh, in a minute what, what's involved in that. But just give us a bit of an overview of that Prof Doc, why you're doing it and and then the areas that you're uh, focusing on. Yeah, so part of the reason for doing the, the Prof Doc, obviously working in a professional environment, it's quite uh, difficult to commit to the, the full-time sort of PhD model. And obviously a big part of what I want to do is, is, is to deliver research that is very applied. So actually people can take my information that I'm trying to put out there and say, okay, I get that, I get the context of that. How can I put that in my environment? Obviously, situation specific, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and obviously take something from the research and trying to move a, a field forward. Um, obviously, the first part of that is a sort of evaluation of oneself and where they stand in terms of professional competencies, uh, in terms of, and then obviously there's some psychological profiling. And obviously, the way they see them, 
uh, themselves developing and where the professional doctorate fits inside that sort of um, framework. Um, so obviously I'm in the stages now where I've, I've got a couple of publications out there which are building towards that uh, thesis of obviously the title of blending uh, science and art in rehabilitation elite soccer. And obviously recently I had the recent editorial in British Journal of Sports Medicine obviously um, starting to integrate a framework for rehabilitation. Excellent. So we'll come on to that in a minute. But one thing I want to kind of frame before we get into that, and this was based on your chat at Salford uh, University last week, or before last week, and it was challenges to balance the research and practice in rehab. And this was something you touched on, and that's obviously a real, really interesting topic from my point of view, just because the amount of research out there on hamstring injuries, on ACLs, on whatever topic you want, but how does, and this is obviously linked back to your, how you explain the doctorate, how that actually links to what's going on day to day. So from your role as head of rehab, how do you manage that, that challenge of taking what's out there in the research and actually applying it to, to a player at a football club? I mean, I think that the key word in, in my uh, doctorate title is the word blending. I think it's about blending a lot of different uh, areas and the key one being that of relationships between staff. Obviously, now we're working in in an age where sports science and medicine has expanded rapidly, where we don't just have a sports scientist who does everything. We now have sports scientists. We have the GPS analysts. We have the strength and conditioning coach. We have the the sports nutritionist alongside many different physiotherapists and specialist physiotherapists in terms of rehabilitation as well. So it's trying to obviously build relationships, um, work together by communicating in a multidisciplinary team and obviously trying to come together to make a shared decision on what is the right thing to do, wherever the player's ready to go back and where it's safe to do that and weighing up the amount of risk um, based on quite a few factors in relation to age, previous injury history, healing times, his build-up of his chronic loading profile throughout his rehabilitation process and also some of the the additional strength and uh, conditioning uh, horsepower diagnostic testing that we do specific to each uh, injury. So it's about collecting objective information, using our clinical reasoning and try to bring that together whilst also taking into account the information that is relayed by other practitioners within our sports medicine field and and ultimately trying to come to the best solution for the player whilst trying to inform the coaching staff as well what's the right thing to do based on all those factors. So it's about, we we collect so much information, the information has to be useful in this this environment to help us to inform decisions. That, you actually took the words right out of my mouth there, because I've just written down horrendous amounts of information. So you're bringing together this 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 number a number of different staff for this initial conversation because one of your players has just got injured. There's a lot of input. That's the key Say point. Again, the initial injury. That's the key point. So once that initially initial injury happens, we have to try and get as much information about why the injury happened potentially. So that, like we don't know why an injury happens, but we can sort of look through the information and try to find out potentially why that happened. And then obviously normally the player will go through depending on the type of injury a scan depending on the bleeding phase, it may be 48 hours after the injury, which that information will then be communicated to the medical staff, to the relevant stakeholders in relation to the player. So then you get, you, everyone gets together, you've got all this information, all these 
opinions on what's the best thing to do. How do you collate all that and bring that together into a plan? What does that plan actually look like? I mean, the plan obviously starts to involve, obviously, what's the actual injury, for example? Um, how is How severe is the injury? What is the potential healing time for that injury? Obviously, uh, muscle and connective tissues have different healing frames and obviously need different types of loading. Uh, so that will need communication with the appropriate staff. And then obviously on the back of that, once once he's, we've discussed obviously what's the process in terms of his early, early, early rehabilitation, which is normally in our environment with the physiotherapists, uh, and then relaying where he needs to be, which might be in a case is he's ready to transition to that early running return to running phase, which then obviously that will start the plan built upon the framework of obviously the um, what's in in the publication in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So obviously, ultimately, those key factors that I talked about, especially the healing times, um, the actual age of the player, previous injury, injury uh, and those things related will determine what is the appropriate framework for that player, and also as we're going to talk about, obviously the key part of the continuum is obviously returning the player to the chronic load demands that they were prior to injury. So we know they're capable of withstanding at least those demands before they got injured. Mm-hmm. So like, like you mentioned before, the uh, force power diagnostics, there's all this technology that's available to us to get as much information before this player gets injured as possible so we actually know where, to, where they need to be back to how are you integrating that sort of information on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis to inform your decision-making in the rehab process? Yeah, I think this is, a, is, a, is an area that uh, seems to be ever-expanding now. Obviously, we've got Val Performance, which has come on the scene. Obviously, we had Forstex, which Forstex is now under Vald, who's given us access to some great uh, testing tools, which there is some actual solid evidence now beginning to grow for test, especially when we're testing. Is the test a reliable test? First of all, is it a valid test? So that means we can take information from that test and actually like have good like clarification in our heads that it has meaning to what we're trying to do. Um, so obviously it will depend on the specific injury, but obviously we have before the players when the players come back from preseason, and uh, we'll do a specific testing batch that we have at the club, which will help us then. Obviously, if a player get injured, we have baseline information upon that player of what really, he, how he was performing from a, from a movement point of view and a force point of view in terms of specific, specific movements that when we want to return him to, he's at least capable of doing that level before he goes back into play. Or if he's not at that level, is, it, is he making steps towards the level we want him to take in terms of musculoskeletal demand or running demands outside? Does that objective measure that you have in terms of the force our diagnostic give you confidence that he's ready to cope with those demands outside on the pitch. So, so let's touch. Go make on. Really good example is like is something that uh, I outline in the um, the physical preparation of the player following an intramuscular hamstring tear was using a simple isometric posterior chain test to use it as a tool for first of all return to running, as in his peak force asymmetry has dropped below a certain uh, point. And then using some of the, the information in terms of how quickly that player generates force as then a guide to returning that player to running at higher speeds. So that would be a, like an example of how that strength and, power, strength and power diagnostic testing is used within our environment. Obviously, it's not the 
be all on end all, but it's giving us some objective information alongside other information we have from the relevant members of our team to make good decisions for that player and ultimately try to reduce the risk of re-injury. So let's let's chat about that test. So what 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 does the test look like? The ISO uh, posterior test. Yes, the pine position. Uh, obviously, we do it generally in two positions. So I'll either do it at a ninety ninety or at a thirty degrees position. If it's a thirty degrees position, like we've represented in the uh, case study for the player following the uh, hamstring tear, obviously there was seems to be there's a great there's a paper that's come out recently. Although they didn't measure actual force production, looked at EMG of the test. I think it was by Paul Reed, who's currently at Aspatar. And they found that the 30 degrees seem to bias uh, MVC of the bicep femoris. So obviously we know that during the late phase uh, of swing that the bicep femoris has uh, high recruitment demands. So we're trying to sort of get as much information. Obviously, the test is would be an overcoming isometric. So you're, you're trying to, you can't overcome the force that you're driving into. So that's obviously a very safe test to do in the early stages of rehabilitation as well. So at what point, so you're looking at the uh, rate of force development to actually go into whether they're, um, they've got the capability to go high-speed running? Yeah. Is that right? Generally, so we look at the time, the forces uh, under the curve, so 100, 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds is a general guide to how quickly that force is, is, is being produced. Generally, like, there's not just one player that we've returned from a serious hamstring strain, obviously, it's another player previously as well who's been uh, noted, although we didn't produce a case for on the player, that has followed this very similar patterns that the peak force generally like resumes quite quickly, but it, there is a lag in the rate of force development. So at what percentage of their pre-injury are they ready for, or have you used, they're ready for high-speed running? Generally for high-speed running, I think anything, so that's, we talk about this, this is this golden term of, 10%, 15%, 20%, what are people going to? But generally anything but between just below 15% is something that we would use. Like Obviously, the closer to that, 10%, then the better. Okay. So when they're, they're going out, they're doing their sessions, how is how is GPS get involved in this this rehab process when you've actually got the, the, the player yeah, outside? It's, obviously, I think there's a quite general consensus now that uh, GPS is used globally, not just in the Premier League now, but throughout the world as a measure of external running loads in players. Um, make that note that I'd say external running loads. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people using the terminology at the minute of workload. Uh, but when you actually think about work in terms of physics, it's actually the amount of energy that's needed to displace an object from, say, A to B. And we don't actually know the amount of work it takes for a player to move from A to B currently. So, Think it's just distinguishing terms of using the uh, terminology of running loads when we, we talk about this. And obviously, we have the external running loads and then the internal response to these. Um, so that's just some making sure we use the terminology correct in terms of when we're talking about sports science terminology. Yeah, because that, that's interesting because I was reading Franco and Aaron's editorial, I think it was editorial, um, around that for like 15 years on external internal load. Um, how are you measuring the internal load during that rehab process? So generally, based on that? I think globally people use obviously the heart rate monitor and then look at yep. time above certain thresholds. So wherever that be, your red zone is above 90 or above 85%. And then obviously then globally your, your heart rate exertion, which is just obviously your weighted score spent within each of those threshold zones as a, an accumulation of heart stress. 
so they're the measures that we'll generally use in terms of the internal response. And then obviously your external running loads is obviously then like a crucial thing in that about we start touching on about this chronic loading now and obviously about building chronic load and re- looking at retrospective loads of where that player was prior to injury. And obviously the, the tissue healing times and where the player's at in terms of his additional strength and conditioning work in, in the gym before he returns to running um, will dictate obviously how long that rehab framework is going gonna, is gonna to be over. So short-term injuries where it's seven to 10 days, obviously, when we look about the, the, the continuum a little bit later on, is obviously we're not going to go through the process of we spent just three return to running sessions because obviously if the player has a small injury and we're trying to get that player as back as quick as possible under the considerations that have been given by the medical team, then obviously we have to progress that player a lot quicker. So obviously there is some need sometimes to fast-track players depending upon the specific injury and obviously the need of the player. And again, it's about weighing up that risk that we have in this in this in in this environment that the player if it's a crucial player may be needed by the team because obviously it's a the game is built upon a success and obviously there's a lot of evidence to say if you have the best players available then you have the best chances of success on on the highest level so let's let's move on and talk about the the paper that your well your latest about the the control chaos continuum. Just want to talk, give us a little bit of a context and the kind of origins of this and where that actually came from. Yeah, definitely. So uh, expanding on back on that original case study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine last year, which we looked at there, there was an early model in there that looked at um, the physical preparation in terms of the outsides uh, model. So that looked at like an early, mid, end stage into training phase that started to interlink this ethos and uh, theory of control to chaos, interlinking uh, movement specificity and football specificity, and then obviously interlinking those GPS variables on top of that, but obviously in relation to this injury that we talked about, which was the hamstring injury. So obviously that was dictated to in terms of this art that we talk about in terms of obviously control in the early stages being high, as in if we limit if we limit the amount of movement variability that the player can perform, then obviously we try, we start to reduce the potential risk of injury. And obviously, as part of that, if control is high, the opposite, chaos will be low. So obviously, we're trying to put uh, control upon movement variability by applying appropriate constraints, um, which is really where... And then obviously, as we go through this model, we, go, we start to then reduce the level of control and obviously increase the level of chaos as the athlete confidence starts to improve, which then the intensity of those external running loads will start to increase and try and get the player back towards his uh, chronic loading demands in terms of sessional demands, in terms of, because obviously we know a lot about um, uh, the profile in terms of musculoskeletal demand stress on the uh, hamstrings during high-speed running and sprint running. So obviously the most the most highest risk thing in relation to a hamstring strain is going to be running a player at high speed, first of all, uh, progressing those running loads at high speed, and then obviously adding chaos to them, as in means of the run is not a straight run, as in speed equals distance divided time. The actual effort is onto movement of either a player, either tracking, depending on the actual positional demands, or moving onto the ball, which obviously the speed and the angle of the pass will dictate how far that player, how fast that player needs to move. Um, so obviously that that was the initial model that we talked about, and then obviously 
building that goes into the next the next publication that recently came out, the editorial, which was starting to add a little bit more context, evidence, and a bit of quality information to help provide other practitioners out there with a little bit of a framework that they can use to be, to progress their rehabilitation after injury. So just give us a couple of examples on probably the extremes is always a, a nice one to, to kind of frame it. So in terms of the control in a, a hamstring rehab, because we're on about that anyway, we're talking about that anyway. Um, so a couple of examples of, of that, what that looks like on the pitch and then ultimate chaos, what that looks like on the pitch. I know you've given a couple of examples of that already, but what do them actually look like to ends of the spectrum? Obviously, we talk about this, uh, start to talk about this continuum now, and obviously it links back to what we're trying to do. We're trying to put either constraints upon movement variability. So it links back to some of the, um, the skill acquisition uh, research um, and obviously Newell's constraints model, which was, well, it's from 1986 now. So it's trying to bring that up. So we're trying to put certain constraints upon movement, which might be environmental in terms of visual cues, decision-making, perception, auditory cues, and obviously, or task task constraints on performance, which might be duration, space, touch conditions, and obviously your speed that you run up, which with general like equation, speed equals distance divided by time, you can take the cost of accelerating and decelerating per specific distance. Um, so in terms of high control, uh, we're trying to, in terms of a hamstring strain, so obviously, you know, with musculoskeletal demands of running goes up as the running intensity and the pace increases. So in those early stages, we're trying to minimize running at high speed, which obviously is anything high speed running will be above 5.5 meters per second. Obviously trying to keep those demands and obviously we need to control what distance that player is going to run in and the actual direction that player is also going to run. So generally for our early return to running phase will be dictated to something like a a box-to-box run um, in around 16 seconds, which gives them a walk to the edge of the six-yard box and back before he does the next run. So it's generally on a a 16 second, 14 second recovery, which is then hitting speeds that are below the high speed running threshold. But then we start to look at obviously the energy system development as part of that. So if a player then does six repetitions of that run box to box, with obviously the work rest time being less than a one to one between the work and the active recovery, he does a number of repetitions in within a block. But then we know we start to, to develop some aerobic conditioning as part of that give and take, obviously, the, the, the level of conditioning of the player. So if we were to do an early return to running stage, so we might do three sets of six runs, box to box, which obviously will then be three times three minutes, which is part of that, because we're starting to hit some conditioning outside, the actual work rest time in terms of that will be anything less than a one-to-one between the rest time. And obviously then the players, then good in that session, the progression through that week in that early return to running phase, obviously we talked about which you might do say in a, in a, in a case example of a long-term injury, might be the player might be going out to do three return to running sessions within a week. So globally, he might go, we might do two sessions where he does two, three sets of six runs. He's around two and a half to three K. So he's obviously around a chronic load in then of around uh, maybe up to 6k in those two sessions. The second session we might do, say, four sets of six, which you need as an extra block. So hence with four sets of three minutes with the one and a half minutes passive recovery. And obviously then he's incre- again increased his distance. We've probably increased the heart rate exertion in terms of his cardiac response to that external running load. And as part of that then globally over the week, we've then started to build some foundations for building some uh, total distance chronic loading within that player 
which is then obviously setting our foundations to move into week two of rehabilitation, which is obviously then progressive. A really interesting point, Rob, to note is like something that we, we intend to present in the upcoming some upcoming case studies is obviously the use of the acute chronic workload during rehabilitation as well. Um, and obviously you'll notice that if a player has done nothing and he goes to doing something, then there's obviously been a spike in the player's load. But a part of this process is then putting a framework in place where the spiking load as such going from doing nothing to doing something is obviously a planned increment in loading, which would then the players will generally keep spiking for a numerous number of weeks because obviously he's building his chronic loading up to a certain point because we're trying to dictate obviously and progress a player up to those chronic loading, depending on what system we have used, where you use a 728, where you use a 714, etc. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. I hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss uh, weekly structures, uh, individual and injury-specific um, protocols and how that relates to the control chaos continuum as we discussed in part one. So kind of more of the same, but just progressing into a very much more practical uh, and recommendation-based uh, chat in this part two, which is coming up, which again, I'm sure you'll absolutely love. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So ironically, Black Box um, were instrumental in the redevelopment of the Everton gym, obviously with Matt on this episode, it ties in nicely. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and as I've said, have worked with the likes of Everton, with uh, people and companies and, and teams in Dubai, in Europe, in Ireland, in the UK, all over the world. So if you're looking for uh, equipment to add to your current provision, or you're looking for a full gym fit out, make sure you check out Black Box Fitness, and they can be found online at blkboxfitness.com or on Twitter and Instagram at blkboxfitness. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So, where would you? Obviously, the, the ultimate aim is to get the chronic load back up to where they were yeah. previously. That's correct. That's correct. So, obviously, you talked about that was the the control side. Then you're going towards that high chaos environment, which that high chaos environment means for a hamstring strain, obviously, high running speeds, repeatability of high running speeds, because obviously we've got some relationship between muscular fatigue and um, uh, hamstring strain occurrence. 
Uh, and obviously doing it in the context that that player, because obviously we need to think about the individual in all of this, not just a band protocol that a lot of people seem to be brandishing about, about we do the player, he runs this, he runs that, achieves this amount of high-speed running. Okay, set the, the foundations in terms of numbers and targets, but we then will also need to think about the actual context that the players perform that external running load in, which is something that the GPS device won't tell you, but something about the practitioner on the pitch, he's the one who has the best interaction, the best interaction into relationships with that player. And obviously a part of that is building psychological confidence that the player is going to go back into training, being able to cope with any demands that is thrown at that player in terms of high-speed environment. So, so moving across... Sorry, mate. Mate. So in, obviously in this phase, because we start to talk about in the early phase, we start to talk about energy system conditioning towards this phase and we talk about speed and speed endurance obviously the actual the actual target energy systems within this part of the session may change so we may look to target high speed and repeatability of high speed within speed endurance sessions um, or in repeatability of speed in terms of in its athletic development side in the warm-up so it's all about context in relation to the actual injury so let's talk about the the as we have been the, the other end of the spectrum from from the control to the chaos and actually building them constraints. What's your? I know you've 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 touched on it a little bit, but how do you actually build them constraints based on um, the the knowledge that you've got of the injury and and some examples would be absolutely superb in terms of the ham, hammy stuff. Yeah. So obviously we're into this like I call it the football Pacific phases. So you've got this. Control to chaos, into moderate chaos, into high cost of chaos. So within them, we talk about trying to prepare the footballer ready for the both the intensive side of the football demands that he's going to be exposed to in terms of acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, distance in the intensive side. So we talk about working restricted spaces, restricted areas, which is obviously going to put high high eccentric loading through that play in terms of breaking breaking velocity. So we have to think about, obviously, like the stress that is going through specific structures. So you're looking at high generation of concentric force to obviously produce force, to stop force, eccentric loading. And obviously, as part of that is obviously the, uh, is obviously the change of direction that takes place in this. So obviously, if we only look at certain measures of GPS running load, as in high speed, we probably won't see a lot in those sort of sessions. Uh, secondly is obviously the exposure of players to intensive football. So this is where we start to expose players to obviously the demands that they would be uh, exposed to in sort of larger areas in relation to 7v7 up to 11v11, which is going to allow players to produce higher speed, produce higher distances, and obviously the higher magnitude of acceleration and deceleration. Because obviously if they're producing speed and they have to stop suddenly, there's going to be a high braking force to stop that level of speed. Um, so some great specific examples probably would be uh, generally from the intensive point of view, so we're trying to trying to obviously create chaos where it may be where we've got a circumstance where we have not just myself, we may have another assistant person uh, assisting me and maybe a couple of players who may be part of rehabilitation as well. It's obviously trying to create some kind of modified small sided game situation where the players obviously turning, twisting, has to move in response to the ball and having to remove in response to other players. And obviously the actual uh, movement of other players will dictate the speed that the player has to move at. Uh, so that's a great example of how to like in, introduce chaotic demands into in terms of high chaos in terms in terms of intensive football. Uh, and secondly, in terms of the chaotic environment, 
we have to, we have to remember that the chaos is not just chaos. It's chaos in the context of football. So chaos could be just running around willy-nilly in and out of poles doing all sorts, but that's not chaos in the nature of football. Chaos in the nature of football that we talked about previously is obviously moving in response to other people and moving in response to the direction and speed of the ball. So obviously, in terms of if we're looking at overlapping, say a fullback, worst case scenario, then he may have to look at, he plays the ball into his to his to his central player and he's, he's going beyond in order to get back to in order to deliver a cross. So that is, when that player's going in beyond, the ball played in front of him at a certain speed, which we don't know what that speed's going to be. We have to put certain certain control upon that at certain times, but in this environment, it, the player just has to respond. He has to go when he's required to and, 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 and he has to think or doesn't think, as we're trying to do, in relation to how quickly he's going to move in this environment. So, I mean, if people, uh, a great example of this, if you check out some of the video content that goes with the editorial, this sort of, as part of it, is actually say, okay, this does actually go on in this environment, and this is what this looks like in terms of how you deliver these sessions in concepts. So let's talk about the transition back into training because there's there's high chaos in a head of rehabilitation and one player type environment. And it's a different scenario when you actually get into a small side, even just in a warm-up doing boxes like that. That, yep. that, that comes with a, a psychological chaos as well as a physiological chaos. Agreed. And, and generally what you do see is you might have um, took a player right beyond his chronic loads in terms of, okay, we're going to think worst-case scenarios – or is the player potentially going to go beyond these demands? How we have we built chronic loading? I know there's a paper by Gabbett and uh, I think it's Hulin who says if you build your chronic loads above and beyond, obviously it lowers the, the potential risk of re-injury. Uh, but obviously what you sometimes don't see is obviously in a one-in-one rehab setting, the player's only responding to you in, in, in the normal occasions. Generally what we do see when the player goes back into training is, is, in, is sometimes in a substantial internal response to that external load. So they might have a, a, lower, a lower relative external load when they go back in because obviously they're only going to do elements of session, but the internal response obviously can go, can go much higher in, in this circumstance. Um, so obviously that will be, depending on obviously the type of injury, will depend on what sort of modified return to training the player may, may go through. So if we're talking as a, an example of, say, an ACL, which we know is anything beyond nine months, 10 months, depending on how long, how the rehab goes and if there's any complications along the way, then we're not going to throw that player probably straight back into small-sided games in training, like you say, Rob. They're probably going to go uh, modified um, session in terms of warm-up and probably boxes, which for the first few weeks, they may do that and then come out to the rehab coach to continue their conditioning before then building up. Again, that links back to the initial bit. It's that communication. If you have the communication with the coaches and the coaches allow that player to go into modified training where they may be a spare man or they might be on the outside of the small-sided games to act as a link player. That's obviously then into further interaction for the player. And again, although, like you say, the, the psychological stress is a lot greater, the internal response is a lot greater, but the actual, actual external loads in that environment, if there may be a, a spare man or on the outside of a, of a, a position game, Will be, a, will, will be a lot lower. So obviously that, that's where it required is that monitoring that player's loading to ensure that 
we were there achieving the targets that they are set even during that modified return to training phase. So this is this has got me thinking about when you say box to boxes, it got me thinking about something that I'd I'd read from uh, Martin Bashite in the last probably 24, 48 hours about substitutes and basically top-up runs after games using high-intensity interval training. In terms of this control chaos continuum, I'm just thinking of substitutes that aren't used, doing box-to-box runs. Where does that fit on this continuum? And should people be rethinking how they actually top these guys up for if they want in high-speed high speed running load? Should this be more to the chaos side? I think so, but then it's again the like, context, as you say, it's about substitutes. Is that going to be in the stadium at the end of the game? Is that going to yep. play you with two players? Is, is, is that context allowing you to achieve those external running loads that you want to achieve in terms of topping up players and make sure they're achieving their chronic loads in, in that environment? So obviously sometimes then we've got to apply a controlled stimulus, like you say, a box-to-box run, but obviously changing the work rest times in terms of how fast they need to make that say it's around 72 metres for a box-to-box run, how fast they need to take. So obviously you're achieving your target objective in terms of your external running load, your internal response by putting some control upon the task, on the task in terms of the space and the duration it's performed on. Uh, and obviously that's context-specific. So again, I think even if we talk about the rehabilitation, the, the, the actual use of this uh, continuum, I think there is a lot of other uses aside from rehabilitation for this continuum, even like assigning certain pre-season models for your for your team going into the new season. So let's discuss that. Let's discuss that. In terms of a, a season, uh, sorry, a pre-season that maybe six weeks, is it is it a, a probably, this is probably oversimplistic, moving from one side of the continu- continuum to the other across them six weeks? Or how does that look if you were going to plan that from a pre-season so. point of view? If a player is He's coming back from pre-season. Obviously, like like any like a player returning from injury, is going to be at risk of potential injury if he, if his loading is not planned. And obviously, if we we can, can keep as much control on 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 that type of loading that the player is going to go through in the early stages, and maybe keep the the chaos to a, as maybe might be in the early stages, low level boxes. There's still a level of chaos, but we know that the speed that the players are going to reach in in the box is going to be minimal. And we know potentially the, the acceleration and deceleration magnitudes in a box are going to be minimal, even though there's a certain level of chaos. So I think it's sort of engineering that model in terms of the, the control chaos continuum to, to fit the, the, the actual the conditioning goals, the actual aims of improving the, the, the team conditioning levels, but obviously then what meets the needs of, of the coaching team as well. So it's again, that comes back again, Rob, to communication. I keep, keep hampering on about that word, but I think it's integral to about getting about getting the right message across and obviously making sure that we do things by, again, balancing research and what goes on in practice. Do you think this continuum for, for good coaches, as in good technical coaches, is quite a natural thought process, as in don't do too much too soon? and don't get the players doing movements that are too variable too soon and then progress both of them things up the continuum? Do you think that's – or is that just me thinking that that should be the case for good technical coaches? Yeah, I think I think that may be the case. I don't – we're not – we best not talk about this bit maybe, Rob, but <laughs> it might get me in hot water, shall we say. <laughs> 
No, that's fine, mate. That's absolutely fine. Um, so what? So what's next on the? Uh, I know you mentioned a couple of times something that maybe maybe come in the future in terms of case studies, but what's next for you in terms of publications? Uh, well, in terms of publications, we have one that's looking at um, the interchange of obviously in in terms of uh, training and match playing, especially in the Premier League. We have obviously the use of the track app um, video camera technology, obviously. Six cameras, HD, sampling, 25 perts per second. And obviously, obviously in training, obviously we use GPS. Uh, something that obviously we've we've used different GPS pods. Obviously, Everton, we use that sport. So they maybe use, we used in two games, we used Viper pods. In two games, we used Apex pods. And obviously, those games were concurrently tracked using the truck up cameras. So it's something, obviously, can we, can we be... Uh, are we consistent and are we, uh, are we doing our diligence in terms of the interchangeability of these technologies? So when we're actually in terms of returning players, like returning players being one way that can be used, uh, does, does the, is the actually interchangeability between the data? So that's something that uh, is currently in, in review with the science of medicine and football. So that's one, one part that we're looking at. Uh, another couple of areas is plan to actually like Although we present the editorial in terms of the framework, is I think is actually like putting some applied applications of that framework in place, and obviously different injuries and how these injuries how they evolve, and obviously very similar to the case study released on the uh, hamstring tear, is how does all the other areas of sports technology and communication fit into this process? So in terms of your strength and power diagnostic testing, your um, your chronic loading uh, schedule in terms of how, where that player, what, what you're returning him to in terms of looking at retrospective data. And obviously very importantly is in the early stages of injuries that can be long-term is what are this, what's the type of, uh, what's the specific type of SNC preparation that player is doing in the gym in order to prepare them for the outdoor stages or the end stages really. Because a lot of the times these players that have long-term injuries that might be out for up to six months plus, then they're spending a lot of time in the gym environment before before even going outside. So it's quite, I think the refreshing thing is trying to, although these case studies might be in N equals one, they're actually in an applied practice what goes on. And I think, I think in sometimes in injuries, although we talk about, I see the value of systemic reviews and obviously randomized controlled trials, are those are those ever going to exist in an elite environment when we know that although the players have a hamstring strain, there's so many different factors around that hamstring strain for that individual player. Are are we are we as practitioners doing the right thing by applying exactly the same protocol to every single player that's had a hamstring strain, just in order to 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 produce a randomised control study? I know myself in a practitioner that I would not be confident delivering exactly the same protocol for every single hamstring strain that we have at the club or not just hamstring strain for every other injury. I have to consider that every individual is different. That may be related to their age. It may be related to previous injury uh, history that they have. It may be related to, obviously, some uh, psychological issues that the player may have, which all need managing throughout this process. So I think... I think the important thing is, although we have might have a, a rough idea of the key considerations that need to be developed in and around an injury, because again, remember that uh, rehabilitation, all it is, is training in the presence of an injury. So really, it's important to know what is important in terms of athletic development for a player, even though he's injured, whilst considering the injury, we still have to develop that athlete because we, because we have time to do that. 
Um, and I think that's a really important thing is making sure that we, we, we look at the key considerations relative to every single player rather than just do globally and treat every single injury the same. I think that's really important. I can't emphasise that even as much as I would like to. Excellent. So anyone that wants to get in touch with regards to anything we've discussed, so editorials, future projects, what's the best place or where's the best place to, uh, to get in touch? Uh, obviously, uh, I'm on Twitter on at Matt Taberner, uh, and obviously uh, my email address as well, so um, matt.taberner at evertonfc.com. So always interested to obviously listen to what people are doing and if anyone else is applying this sort of framework out there, happy to have a conversation and try to progress the field. Ultimately, that's what we're here to do is trying to give something back to an industry that, well, it's given me and probably many others uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of pleasure in terms of working with athletes. So um, anyone's got any suggestions of how this can be moved forward. And maybe I think as well, like we look at this in respect of, uh, of uh, football, uh, maybe the application to continue into other sports, maybe rugby, basketball, American football. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of, development for this area and I think people being open and honest and not being afraid to show what they do with their athletes and I think that's how people learn in this environment is actually what do people do why have you chosen that exercise for that player why have you chosen to do that specific running session for that player I think if we have a specific rationale for why we're doing something and we can back it up then although someone might disagree with that they they, they can see a sense that you have specific justification for why you've done something. I think that's important because it creates open discussion between obviously fellow practitioners and staff within within the building that we work. Absolutely agree. Well, Matt, thank you very much for coming on for a part two. No problem. 18 months too long. But um, yeah, anyone that wants to get in touch. <laughs> anyone. <laughs> anyone, that, anyone that wants to get in touch, obviously Twitter and um and Matt's email. So thank you very much, Matt. And uh, obviously keep in touch and we'll, we'll speak soon. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Appreciate your time, mate. Thanks, mate. No worries. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Matt. So big thanks to Matt for coming on for a part two. Long overdue and really interesting to hear of the things that he's getting published at the minute in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and the work he's doing at Everton. So just one last thing, if you are enjoying the podcast and want to keep up to date with all that's going on the podcast, make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and every Thursday morning, UK time, new podcast will get delivered straight to your phone. So make sure you do that if you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you very much for your support and I will chat to you next week.